Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Tracy Helton. During our conversation, Tracy talks about how she went from a high school honor student in Ohio to a heroin addict, her years of living homeless on the streets of San Francisco, and her 17 years of sobriety, during which she has become employed, a wife, and a mother of three. All right, Tracy, uh, thanks for taking some time and uh, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks for having me. Cool. I would love to start just by sort of learning a little bit about uh, you and your your personal background. Um, Where did you grow up? Are you from the Bay Area or did you grow, grow up somewhere else? So I am from a part of Ohio, Westchester, Ohio. Um, when I was growing up, it was a rural area with um, sort of big lawns that were you know, three quarters of an acre. And uh, I remember being a child and someone riding their horse down the street that they had from not too far away. And over time, that um, area now is sort of all parceled up into um, malls and olive gardens and mm-hmm. Um, suburban homes. Yeah. And at what point in your life did you sort of come to the, come to the West Coast? So I came to, to San Francisco in 1992. Um, I think I left like April 4th on the Greyhound bus um, to find heroin. So um, I was attending the University of Cincinnati. Um, I was in my second year, I believe. I tested out of almost my whole first year of high school, of college in by taking AP classes in high school. Um, so I was going to college and um, I had started using drugs recreationally. And at the time, um, heroin was uh, not the first thing on my mind, but it was definitely something I had seen in movies and had wanted to try. And um, so it was really, really hard to get heroin. Well, first I had started with other opiates, but it was really hard to get heroin in Cincinnati. Um, a person would have to drive to New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, um, which were, you know, anywhere from six to 10 hours away to get heroin and bring it back. And then, um, I had heard from friends who had traveled the country that the two places that they were easiest to get heroin would be New York city or San Francisco, so I was on um, spring break uh, from the University of Cincinnati, and I came out to San Francisco, and I never left. So, w- at what point in your life did did sort of drug use begin for you? Was that something that started with with alcohol consumption, or did it start with something else? So I was really um, a square uh, for most of my life. Um, I had seen the effects of addiction and alcoholism on my family. And that wasn't something I was really interested in. I just remember um, being 17 years old and having my um, my wisdom teeth taken out in the way that, that I don't remember if it was Vicodin. I think it was Vicodin or Percocets or whatever it was, the way that it had made me feel. And um, so I was doing sort of appropriate experimentation with uh, marijuana and alcohol sort of at the very end of high school and then... When I got out of high school, my drinking sort of accelerated, uh, and then later I was introduced to prescription opiates through, you know, medicines that people had taken from their parents, me- you know, medicine cabinets, um, and then it just things just kind of accelerated for me over time. 
uh, over the course of, you know, from the time I was like 19 to around 21 years old. Was it the first time that you tried opiates, prescription opiates with, with the Vicodin after, after getting your wisdom teeth out, was the impact or just the sort of deliciousness of the impact of that drug significantly better than the other drugs you had tried or was it, they were basically the same? So I was really, I was diagnosed with having clinical depression. I was really depressed as a younger person. Um, and I was really fat when I was growing up. And so I think there's a lot more acceptance because so many people are overweight today compared to in the seventies when I was growing up, um, I was teased really relentlessly. Also, I was in the gifted and talented classes with big glasses, sort of like every stereotype that you can think of. Um, I would, you know, um, I had computer coding classes that I took as part of the gifted and talented classes. So I was sort of, um, a nerdy kid and picked on and then um, I became sort of more and more withdrawn and um, so I started going out and um, I had lost all this weight in between I think it was either my sophomore or junior year or junior and senior year and it was really hard to have all this attention um, suddenly because I had lost 50 pounds and boys were interested in me and um, people treated me so differently it was like being under a microscope and I just remember um, I was with my boyfriend at the time when he came over um my new boyfriend um my first boyfriend uh and I had taken the the medication I just remember like feeling like I no longer cared about all the all the ways people had thought about me and my depression sort of slipped away and I felt really I've always been really talkative but I felt like um a feeling like you don't care what other people think which um as a teenager is really really difficult it's like crippling uh, and that's really um, a feeling that I wanted to have again. So I didn't necessarily know, um, you know, marijuana was okay, but it wasn't really for me. And um, alcohol, I definitely didn't want to become hooked on alcohol, but um, that was a feeling that I liked, that I identified with. You mentioned uh, a bit earlier that you, you had sort of seen the impact of addiction in, in your family. What, what was going on there? Was that mostly alcohol addiction or, or other things too? Uh, there was other things too, but alcohol was, uh, my father had a really severe drinking problem, uh, all the, during all the time I was growing up. So I got to see what that was like. My sister had had some issues on and off with drugs. Um, and my brother was drinking. I mean, it was more stuff that people go through as a teenager, but I was significantly younger than my siblings. So I was witnessing it from a different perspective. Maybe as, if, if I was a little bit older, um, and I didn't like the way that alcohol made people act and made people do all these things that they wouldn't necessarily do. Uh, but I really didn't, I, I have to say that, um, but this is before the internet, so I really didn't understand what opiates did. Like, I really didn't understand um, the sort of addictive nature of them. Um, I, the first time I had withdrawal, I didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, no, There was no one to explain to me for many days what was wrong with me. I was very, very naive as to um, what the effects were of taking these drugs. So the the first time you did it, you you took got, got your wisdom out and and you took some some Vicodin or some, some some sort of an opiate. Did you immediately after that moment then go and dedicate a lot of your time and energy into finding opiates again, or did it take some time for you to um, think, man, I, I'd really like to to try whatever that was uh, again? I didn't seek them out immediately. I think I was um, more afraid of that than anything. But I think as um, was I was getting in college and you would see people uh, around who would use different kind of opiates, I thought, oh, that might be something I could do again. And then 
when I started using them, it was just sort of a, a snowball effect. Um, I know a lot of people like myself, you go out to parties and someone says, oh, we'll take your, you know, you've been drinking, take one of these. This will really help your buzz. Um, so I hadn't thought much about it, but um, it was about a year or two in where um, I, we know I had experimented a little bit and then I had more ready access to them. And when I started using them, I just, um, it just seemed like it escalated so quickly to where um, I was injecting them. Um, I had a friend who was, he was very interested in injecting them and the two of us tried it together. And when I look back on it, this, the whole thing is just so ridiculous, like using a dirty needle that was, uh, we had to sharpen on a matchbook that he had gotten from someone who had gotten it from someone who had gotten it from someone. Um, and I injected these pills that really aren't supposed to be injected. And, um, and I felt this feeling and I thought, oh, I really want to have that feeling again. And there was, um, at the time, uh, you know, so much stigma attached to, um, to IV drug use. Uh, this is during what I call the era of AIDS, um, where uh, so many people were dying. There was no medications or anything for people with HIV. But um, I always had that sort of side of myself where I felt like I, I grew up so sheltered. I wanted the, the taking the risk was part of the excitement of it. Um, uh, unfortunately, I used that risk a lot of times for really negative things. Were you at, 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 in some way sort of at, at war with yourself? I mean, here you are, this sort of bright, interesting, intellectual girl, but also interested in, in this sort of recreational drug use. At first, at least, was there um, a, a battle going on internally as to whether or not you should be engaging in that, that sort of thing, or not particularly? I think I was heavily influenced by people around me and you know, sort of music. I got, I was listening to punk rock music or different kinds of, um, you know, just, just wanting to have that experience of not feeling was something that I was really interested in. Um, I was, you know, having been depressed and, um, and it, it provided me with that. It was, there was a lot of payoff. I've said before that if it wasn't for opiates coming into my life, I probably would have committed suicide because it had, um, I was, you know, very depressed. I was a cutter, uh, and it provided me with instantaneous relief, but unfortunately, the the solution becomes ultimately the the a much greater problem than the one you started out with. You described it a little bit, but I would love for people to sort of know what what that relief is like. I mean, it, the from the time you begin to, to take that substance, and then what are what is the internal experience of of, of taking an opiate, at least from your perspective? Well, I think it. Depends. So some people are not in the same place where I was. Some, you know, some people don't like it. It's too much. It's, you know, um, they're over sedated. They're throwing up. They're, um, you know, having trouble keeping their eyes open in a dreamlike state. Um, that's not really something that resonates with some people. But for me, it was sort of the feeling like, um, nothing really mattered, but in a positive way. And it's like being in love. Uh, with the most beautiful person in the whole world and having them love you back and but not having to do a single thing for them at the same time with uh, you know feeling like you're beautiful and perfect and everything is perfect in the world uh, and then there's this incredible letdown from that that um, eventually you feel like I want to feel this way forever and the only way to do that is to continue to use because the letdown once you realize that um it's all an illusion. It's very, very painful. Um, so it's an experience that, um, you know, it seemed like 
it was working for me at first, but it, I got addicted so quickly. I mean, it was almost like I, I uh, snapped my fingers and I turned around and I was addicted. When I came to San Francisco and I had access to all kinds of drugs, um, you know, with literally within a few blocks, like that I couldn't get a hold of. It would take months and months and months to find some of the same things in Ohio. Uh, it was overwhelming, and I just remember thinking, like, how did I get in this place? Like, within a few, with literally within a few weeks, I was homeless, um, you know, with scars all over me and injecting drugs in between the rocks of the Civic Center, uh, you know, with blood running down my arm and stuff like that. And I was like, I was just in college. Like, how did that, how did that happen? And I was so ashamed by the whole experience. Um, I just refused to go home. I, there was very, there was a period of time where I had very little contact with my, with my friends or family because I couldn't believe the things that I had done to myself in such a short period of time. I want to get to the, your, your sort of journey out to San Francisco in, in a sec. What, uh, how long does, does a high last? At least at first, when you were first beginning to, to take opiates, would, is this something that would go on for a few hours or longer than that or shorter? Oh, like a whole, a whole night. So it could be, you know, 12 hours. It, it I mean, it has, it's a diminishing returns. Um, so it can be, you know, 12 hours, eight hours, but then it's, um, as you get addicted, the time period is shorter and shorter where you, where you really, really feel the effects. And the way that you were first taking it, it sounds like was it was oral consumption of pills. Is that correct? And then eventually it got into injecting it or, or different different methods of taking the, the drug. Yeah. So first I started taking pills orally, and then I started injecting pills, and then I started injecting heroin. And by taking the injecting the pills, you you cut the pill up, you put it into a um, some sort of a vial, and then inject it into your arm. There's a whole thing around the preparation, especially because a lot of the um, the drugs have acetaminophen in it, and you're really not supposed to inject that. It's really, really horrible for you. Um, so there was a whole preparation around it. But, I mean, th- the drugs that we did back then didn't have a lot of the um, tamper-resistant uh, things in them that they have now with pills. Hmm. At what point did you decide it's you know this drug is so important to me that it, that it's time for me to to try to get greater access or more more frequent access was that it sounds like that was in in college is that is that right? Well, I came out here to San Francisco on for spring break and I got strung out within a few days of being here. I just remember I got here on like a Friday and I found heroin and then I just remember continuing to use it and it only takes a few you know, three or four days before you start to develop um, sickness if you don't have it. And I just remember just running with that um, where I just continued to use and use and use. And uh, then I decided I didn't want to stop. It was, it was, um, you know, withdrawal from opiates is very painful. Um, First of all, it's painful because you realize that you've spent all this money and spent all this time on opiates, but then there's um, it's like every fluid from your body is injecting and, and ejecting itself at the same time. So your nose runs, your stomach's upset, you have diarrhea, you, uh, your eyes run like tears coming out of your eyes. It's everything's coming out of you all one time. And it's really, really, really horrible, which is part of the reason why some people have so much trouble getting off opiates. Did you come out to San Francisco by yourself or you were with a group of people? That came no, out? I came by myself. And when you arrive in, in a place like San Francisco, is it really as simple as going to someone on a street corner or in a known drug zone and asking, is, you know, is there a way for me to, to get some heroin? So I was staying with a friend at the University of San Francisco, and uh, I went, I walked down 
to by Golden Gate Park, and I asked someone if they knew where they could get heroin, and then they took me someplace, and then we ended up going to someone's house and getting heroin. And the way it works from the the time of purchase to actually injecting it, it there's a you have to you have to light it. Is, is that correct? How, do, how exactly does that process? So it depends work? on what part of the country that you're in. So San Francisco historically has tar heroin, which needs to be heated, and then on the East Coast they have what's called East Coast powder, which is a different kind of heroin that um, you, sometimes you can just add water to it. Uh, the heat can destroy the the um, the actual drugs that are in it, so um, you have to be careful with heating it up. But tar heroin comes in a form that um, it's a sticky, vinegary substance that um, a lot of times has to be heated so you can put it into a syringe. I'd love to know too, kind of the the kind of people you were meeting in that in the first few weeks. You you get out here and you, you meet some people and you, you get some drugs. How did they strike you? Were they all similarly addicts like you? Were some just doing it recreationally, or was the opiate just so powerful that it was pretty much consuming everyone? Uh, the people I met in my initial stages here, I didn't meet very many functional heroin addicts. Um, there are definitely functional heroin addicts. I knew some when. Um, in other places where I had lived that ended up coming to California. I, um, and one of my first roommates that I had here was working at Bank of America. And uh, he would, on his breaks, he would want me to bring him heroin. Um, but that was like one, a rare exception. Um, in the time that I've been clean, in the 17 years that I've become clean, um, heroin is so widespread in the country. I've met so many people from so many walks of life that use heroin that are functional, that have jobs, that have families. Um, they're in the closet with their habit. Um, everyone from stockbrokers to people that work in um, IT, that people that I've met teachers, um, I've met all kinds of different people that um, are addicted to heroin, many of which um, switched from prescription medications to heroin because heroin is so significantly cheaper and stronger now. At what point during during sort of your time out, out in San Francisco, it sounds like you came out here just for sort of a vacation and then ended up kind of never leaving. Um, was there a moment when you realized, one, this drug owns me, and two, I need to do something about it? Well, you realize that a million times. I mean, I, I'm sure I realized that at least a thousand times, but doing something about it is totally different. When you're, I kicked heroin 10 different times before I finally kicked uh, I tried switching drugs. I tried quitting. I went to the methadone clinic. Um, I would try to quit on my own. I did all these different things and and would go back to it, uh, you know, for emotional reasons or because of physical withdrawal. So I went through, I mean, when you're homeless, um, I was homeless, you know, living with a shopping cart for many years. Uh, that, that section was covered in the movie Black Tar Heroin, The Dark in the Street, where they showed me initially and I was... I had shopping carts like that wasn't their shopping cart. That was actually my shopping cart. I lived outside and, you know, you're eating out of dumpsters and living like an animal. And you think, wow, how, you know, how am I living like this? But then again, how are you going to change? Like you come to a point in your life where um, it seems impossible. Like I can't even take care of my hygiene. I can't have food. Like how am I going to get off drugs? It just seems the task at hand seems um, completely insurmountable. So what was it that finally allowed you to begin to to truly kick the habit and, and make it for 17 years? Well, I had, 
I had just come to the place where I was in, I was using a lot of different substances and I was injecting in the soles of my feet and I had had, uh, 34 soft tissue infections and, uh, my life was just complete hell. Like I would just use and, um, I was just so miserable and I was thinking, even if I go to jail, I'm going to ask them to go to rehab. Like there has to be, I had tried to go to methadone on my own to, to get off heroin I couldn't do it and I was thinking if if they finally send me to jail again because before they had sent me to jail I had refused to go to rehab I'm going to ask them to go to rehab and when that happened I just took that opportunity and um, when I went to jail they thought I was converting it seroconverting HIV positive and I thought well you know what even if I have HIV I still want to be clean like I don't know what clean I like I had no idea what clean was I'd never met anyone who had gotten clean but I thought you know I'm going to try this and um I put a lot of faith into the universe, um, not really a higher power, but just sort of um, faith in myself or, or faith in the process that there had to be something better because I had absolutely gone to the very, very bottom of where um, you could be, and I wanted to improve my circumstances somehow. Uh, so I agreed to go. I kicked heroin in jail, heroin, benzodiazepines, alcohol, uh, marijuana and speed and crack the last was I used all those things the last day that I had used and that was um that was February 27th 1998 uh that I the first day that I had clean I got arrested February 26 1998 and I've stayed clean ever since and it's been uh you know it's been a roller coaster ride there's definitely been some ups and downs but mostly ups uh mostly positive things I'm I have a master's degree in public administration, a bachelor's degree in business. I have a substance abuse credential. I have three beautiful children. I have a husband. I own a house um, where I was homeless. Um, I have a good job. I have all these different things. Um, but it was, you know, it was a whole process. Part of that was un unraveling what my relationship was with with heroin and um, other opiates and finding the desire to live um, without those. Which uh, I all, I can only say that um, using drugs, especially opiates, is like being in an abusive relationship. You, the thing that you love, constantly beats you up, and so it's very challenging to get away from that. And um, there's so much stigma, in particular, attached to being a heroin addict. Um, it's very, very difficult for people to ask for help because it's almost like the last forbidden thing. Like people under, kind of understand alcoholism. But when you talk about, oh, you use terrorists, like, what? They absolutely have, they don't understand what you're talking about. And I think 17 years ago, it was quite different than it is now because now you have so many people who are addicted to heroin. Um, it's very, very common. Um, I work with parent groups and, um, you know, families. And they're, I mean, heroin addiction, it's everywhere. You can't escape it in the United States anymore. There's heroin absolutely everywhere. So how did you do it? Did you, you know, when you would go into, into relapse or you would, you would go to a point where you were, your body was just aching to, to get out of your withdrawal symptoms. Did you, was there something you said to yourself? Is there somewhere you went? Is there a book you read? What, what sort of things did you do to try to help yourself? Um, well, I was in jail, so that helped, but there was drugs in the jail. Even when I was in there, I just had made, I had made up my mind, like, this is what I'm going to do. I've tried everything else. I've tried to make this drug work a million different ways, and it's absolutely not working. Um, I think rehab was helpful in that um, it took me out of the drug environment long enough 
that I could get some sense about myself, um, where I was able to make some better choices. I just started thinking, like, I remember when I was there, I was underneath the street light and I had my shopping cart and I was sitting there tweaking through all my stuff. I was all high on speed and I was sitting there thinking, one of these days I'm going to put my shopping cart down and I'm going to go back to school and uh, I'm going to leave this life behind. And then I laughed because it was so hilarious because it was so ridiculous that that would actually happen. And I remember thinking at, at the time I was 27, almost 28 years old, if I don't do something now, this might be my only chance. Because I had the only reason I agreed to do the movie Black Tar Heroin is because I thought I was going to be dead by the time I was 30. Um, so I thought it would be something that people could see after I was dead and they would realize heroin wasn't glamorous. So I quit. I quit. Um, and I just gave up. I just said, I'm, I, so I went to 12 step meetings. I went to therapy. I went to group counseling. I went to individual counseling. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time by myself. Um, I got a job, which I hadn't had a job in years. Um, even as a convicted felon, I still got a job. Uh, and I moved into sober living. So I just did, I did little things incrementally, but mostly I told myself I deserve better than, you know, sticking needle in my neck for the rest of my life. Do you think that's something that, you know, that whatever voice that was inside your head or belief, did that come, do you think, through just your general intelligence? Or what's what's the difference between, in your perspective, your ability to have that sort of inner compass and and other people who, who just never make it out of that addiction? I think anyone can quit. I don't. I don't think my experience is unique. I think absolutely anyone can quit. It's just how much pain do they, are they, can they go through and what are the circumstances and what are the natural supports and stuff that they, and some people don't want to quit. And I think that to a certain extent that needs to be respected that they may have too many things going on in their life where um, it may be impossible for them. Uh, I think that because of our, the way that our society criminalizes drug addicts, we're, um, you know, people are not given the opportunity to make any kind of informed decisions around themselves. Uh, so it's, it makes it very difficult. I mean, there's so much pain involved with the kind of things that you do with drugs, the, the kind of life that you live. Um, and I wonder, you know, they, there's all these studies that show that, that opiates work as a mild antidepressant for people. And there's actually a new clinic, there's a clinical trial, stage two clinical trial, where they give people low doses of buprenorphine, which is uh, an opiate replacement. Um, and for people who have had at least two treatment failures on different kinds of antidepressants, and it's showing a lot of promise. Um, so I don't really know the reasons in particular that people gravitate towards opiates, but it seems to be people who are anxious and people who are depressed and they're using um, those drugs to medicate their symptoms. So when you take those drugs away, sometimes it's very, very complicated and difficult for people to live. And I went through a lot of you know emotional issues and even today with 17 years clean um, I have issues with depression I have issues with anxiety I just use different methods to cope with that was there a point in during the 17 year period where you thought I'm probably going to beat this or is it every day you getting up and saying I'm still very much at risk and I need to be on guard I think that I am okay with the fact that I need to be abstinent from drugs some people decide that they can go back to drinking and some people decide that they can go back to smoking pot but i i've tried all that and it's not for me um i've been prescribed opiates for when i had c-sections and i've had um them introduced to my system and i remember 
right away my body was like oh this is great you know it was, it was just it was almost instantaneously to it's like i just i've only been on these drugs a couple of days so it's been a you know a reminder that um that that hasn't changed and i think that i'm being realistic with myself um, my circumstances are different from the next person's circumstances so i think um, it's almost like you can have everything if you give up this one thing. It's like, I'm willing to give up this one thing to have everything. Do you think that the resources that you were able to get access to as you began to sort of try to get out of your addiction are, are still available? Or, or are you concerned about how many you know, programs have, have been cut in the past 30 years since, or less than that, 15 or 20 years since you were trying to get out of your addiction? Um, in some ways, there's more resources, and in some ways, they're less. I can only speak for San Francisco. Um, I used to work in the building that was the was the administration of substance abuse and mental health services. There's considerably less rehab beds than when I went to rehab. Um, their rehab system is different now. It used to be that a person would stay until they were ready to leave. Now it's more around built around a spin dry, especially in the private system, where it's um, 28, 28 days and go. Uh, I was able to stay in rehab two and a half months, which now would be considered a pretty long treatment stay. Um, so things have changed and not necessarily for the better as we've, you know, worked towards more managed healthcare systems um, as opposed to, um, you know, be focusing on the whole person. I think heroin and opiates come with a unique set of, of issues, not just because the person might have... Um, hepatitis C, HIV, soft tissue infections, endocarditis, those kind of things. But there's also um, the emotional context of that, um, you know, dealing with people's, uh, there's the post-acute withdrawal symptoms that people deal with. So a 28-day stay in rehab is not really very long. So that's that's kind of my concern. Now, I'm excited about the fact that we have, we didn't have buprenorphine. Um, That was in the clinical trials when I was getting cleaned. Um, otherwise known as suboxone. So there are, in terms of um, medically assisted treatments, there are some new options. Some people try the Vivitrol, which is a long-lasting naltrexone shot um, to assist them in their recovery. But, you know, all those have, they also have some clinical issues, um, some drawbacks. But I think that there's there's more options. There's smart recovery. There's life ring. There's alternatives to 12-step um, that are available that I had never heard of. But um, I think that uh, there's also so much more need than, um, than there was necessarily uh, when, when I was using. I mean, when I look at, and there's so many, and now with, um, you know, the overdoses are reaching a, a, a epidemic. Um, I run a small little naloxone program where I distribute um, the opiate antidote that thing it's it's a substance that reverses the effects of an opiate overdose um we have sections big swaths of the country where it's still not available even though um, people are dying almost every day you have clusters of people dying from contaminated heroin um, where the heroin's contaminated with fentanyl um so so there's some good things that have happened and there's some not so good things that have happened so we have naloxone that's great but then we have heroin everywhere and many of which many places that's tainted. It's like we have the ability to go to rehab. That's great. But then the rehab stays are not necessarily long enough. We have the outpatient treatment options much more than we just had methadone. There's more methadone treatment slots available. That's great. But then there's also still the stigma that goes with people who, um, who are on any kind of medically assisted um, therapy. If you could go back to yourself 
you know, the night that you first tried opiates when you were a teenager living in Ohio, um, what, what would you, what would you say to yourself at that age? You know, the, the, as you mentioned, that opiate just had an instant positive impact on you. Are there other things, other paths you would have, you know, nudged yourself in, into to try to, um, remedy your, your depression at that time? What, what would you have, what would you have, what advice would you have given yourself at, at that, at that age? Well, I think, you know, as being someone who's 45 years old, there you see that some of the things that you think are so significant are not necessarily that important. Um, I was so, you know, so caught up in what other people thought of me and not so much about what I thought about myself. I was, uh, I had very little self-confidence. Um, I would also, my, the most important message that I would have for younger people who are thinking or have tried experimenting with drugs is educate yourself on what you're taking so many people that i meet today they do not educate themselves even though there's so much information they have no concept of what they're putting in their body what they're doing what the effects can be it's so easy just to be at a party and somebody hands you a pill so i'm not saying that there are plenty of people who use heroin and do not become addicted to it that's i mean there's research that shows that there's people who take opiate medications that do not become addicted to it. But if you're a person like myself who already knew that I had that potential predisposition, I, you know, if I would have known more about what I was getting myself involved in, maybe I would have tried something different or maybe I wouldn't. It's impossible to say in hindsight. Last question I want to ask you, um, in terms of looking towards the future, what, what, what can we as a society do in, in your judgment to try, as you mentioned, I mean, it's getting to epidemic proportions. There are kids, people dying of heroin overdoses, opiate overdoses in the U.S. every day. Um, what can we change? What can we do to try to alter what, what seems to be happening to so many people in this country? Well, I think the first thing is that um, we need to lobby to have naloxone available over the counter. So if people are going to be using, they need to have the ability to save each other's life or save their own life by using naloxone. Um, It's a very inexpensive drug that the only thing that it does is reverse the effects of an overdose. And it's not just junkies that have overdoses. It's you know, grandma or anyone who's, you know, prescribed pain medication after surgery or um, for chronic pain conditions. So we need to have naloxone available um, for everyone. I think also having in the schools, having accurate drug education as opposed to just say no um, or dare, like really educating people about um, drugs. I think another thing is reducing the stigma around Heroin addiction in particular, but also opiate addiction um, is also very important. I think expanding the use of uh, medically assisted treatments where necessary is another one. I think also increasing the stays of rehabilitation programs. But there's, you know, and also um, another thing I'd be interested in is um, having uh, controlled trials of ibogaine. Um, You know, we hear a lot of sort of anecdotal evidence and stories from people that are going to these Ibogaine clinics in Costa Rica and other Mexico um, that are having good results with getting off of uh, opiates. I would really like to see one of those in the United States. Um, another one would be using a medical cannabis for withdrawal. So the medications, the medically um, 
assisted therapies like buprenorphine and methadone have can have horrible withdrawals when you get off of those. So one of the things I actually had wrote an article about it in the Daily Beast about using medical cannabis for there's anecdotal evidence that especially um, cannabis oils and ingested cannabis can help with um, withdrawing from opiates. So I would like to now that we have some states where um, recreational use is legal, I'd like to see some controlled trials of uh, using, you know, uh, medical cannabis to help people in the early, you know, three to five days detoxing off of drugs. So I guess this would be my biggest kind of policy recommendations or recommendations. Gotcha. Well, Tracy, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing your, your story and, and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.